Thank you, Mustin, very much indeed. It was kind of you to call it the most recent book, which implies there were some before it. And um, previous publications were recently turned by a friend pamphlets. So that's, um, <laughs> so, uh, that's encouraging progress. Um, let me just put the slide up, which will tell you where we're going. This is a little picture of what's coming up. Let me apologise as well, and uh, if you want to ask for your money back later on, feel free to do so, because you're not getting what was advertised. So this has been sold under false whatever the word is. Um, there's going to be some of Noah's boys later on, but much later on, and they're not really getting 50-50 attention. It is really one long paper on God's covenant with Noah, with something on Noah's boys within it. Um, so if you were here because of Shem, Ham and Japheth, then um, I'm sorry. Um, I mean, arguably, you should actually pay extra because you're getting more covenant theology um, <laughs> rather, rather than having a refund because you're not getting there as boys. But uh, it's, it's really going to run straight through then the two sessions. That doesn't mean I'm going to talk straight through the two sessions, don't worry, um, with a break halfway through to discuss what I've covered so far. And there is a fairly natural break in the material for us to stop. But it is one whole argument um, that I'm going to attempt to lay out for you. So let me begin by asking you a question. What role does Noah play in your theology? Let's have a think about that question for a moment. Maybe you've preached through Genesis 6 to 9 and you've made particular applications on the basis of Noah. But I mean when I ask the question, what role does he play, something bigger than that. I'm asking really about the, if you like, the, 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 where, if you think of the different plates of theology, or bits of theology as plates on the, the crust of the earth, where is the Noah plate and what's it doing? What's sitting on top of it and what's next to it? And how's it functioning in the whole system of your theology as a whole? Do, does Noah feature in it very much? Does he do much in your system? It could be really that he doesn't do anything in your system. Um, he might be there, he might be there to be preached on occasionally, he might teach us things about the Christian life, good important things about the Christian life, but not do much more than that in your system. And I expect that we're all in different places on this question. I expect that some of you have a clear and worked out answer to it, and you know exactly where Noah is and what he's doing in your theological universe. And you're here ready to defend your account of what Noah is up to, poised, ready to strike from known ground, established ground on which you stand, and you can do that later. For others, you know the question, and you see that it's an interesting and important question, but you're not quite sure what the answer is to it. Um, you're aware of some of the options, perhaps, but you've never finally settled on one of them. For many, I suspect, and I doubt it's anybody here because you bothered coming, but for many... Uh, it is a bit of a non-question. They just wonder whether it really matters at all. Uh, it's one of those technical questions that theological boffins ask. A question for men with their heads in the clouds rather than their feet on the ground. Not a question certainly for evangelists and pastors or church planters. Those concerned to start and to grow churches in our nation, why would they ever bother thinking about Noah and his place? I fear, and you can tell me that I'm just gloomy, um, but I fear that our churches are threatened by a tidal wave of pragmatism. A tidal wave of pragmatism. I would love to have an hour in this room uh, with 
how many could we get in? A hundred pragmatists, maybe? Um, and try to prove to them the significance of what looks like an irrelevant question about Noah and his place in theology. Because it'll become pretty clear, I think, that what you think about Noah makes a massive difference to your theology, to your view of the Christian life, your view of the world, in fact, and the Christian's place within it. And I hope to demonstrate that now. That was the introduction. One of the ongoing debates among Reformed theologians, especially in the United States, but also in this country, concerns the right understanding of a Christian's involvement in the wider culture. The debate rumbles on continuously, doesn't it? There's been another little flare-up this summer. Carl Truman said something very provocative on the Reformation 21 blog and got lots and lots of electronic feedback from people who are unhappy about it. Um, I saw what the, the, what's that thing called the mortification of spin, the radio broadcast he does. Um, he, he advertised under the heading of leaving the world untransformed one blog post at a time, um, which was amusing. Um, so this is an ongoing debate. There's a wide spectrum of views on it among uh, brothers, among reformed people. In fact, there's even pretty wide diversity among people at the same end of the spectrum as well. There are different sorts, for example, of transformationism as you might characterise one position. Those who believe the gospel does and should change the wider culture vary nonetheless massively on a whole set of issues within understanding how it should do that. I would strongly agree with some of them on certain points and strongly disagree with others of them on certain points. I think, and this is a really crude generalisation, you might say that there are two main groupings at opposite ends of the spectrum. There is the two kingdoms approach at one end of the spectrum, represented by some of the faculty of Westminster Seminary in California, Westminster in the West. And then there is at the other end of the spectrum what you might call the transformationist position, represented historically perhaps by Abraham Kuyper in the present perhaps by Tim Keller. These are really big generalizations I'm making here. The reason I mention all of this is that our interest in this debate is that Noah plays a vital, though often quite under noticed, overlooked part in it. And this is particularly clear in the works of one author with whom we're going to spend a lot of time this afternoon, and that is David Van Drunen. David Van Drunen's written a number of articles and books articulating the two kingdoms theology. He's one of its foremost proponents. And what I want to do is to start by outlining in some detail Van Drunen's position in two kingdoms theology generally, and then especially the place of Noah within it and the use that he makes of Noah to sustain his whole project, really. Now, let me just begin with a, a caveat, which is this. Um, I'm going to subject Van Drunen's book, especially his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, there's some of his articles as well, to some sustained criticism. But I don't want to suggest that his position is unreformed, at least on his position on Noah anyway. It's not. There are many historical reformed writers who agree with Van Drunen's take on Noah. At this point, it is an intra-reformed debate, and I want to contribute to the debate without inflaming the debate. When I was doing my uh, PhD, my supervisor used to tell me, just take the huffing and puffing out, will you? Um, and so I've tried to remove all the huffing and puffing from this paper. Van Drunen's writings show 
pretty clearly that he is a good Christian brother seeking to help others understand what it means to live under the lordship of Christ. How to do that in our culture today. And he should be treated as such. And I like his book in a sense, though I disagree with it pretty massively, because I think it's a very lucid and stimulating presentation of that position. It does its work very well, and in that sense, I'm grateful for it. So let's come to the substance. What does David Van Drunen believe, and how does Noah fit into it? For Van Drunen, there are two kingdoms ruled by God. Two kingdoms, hence the label. There is, first of all, the redemptive kingdom, which is the church. Redemption is a reality only in the church. Nothing, he believes, is redeemed apart from the people in the church. No cultural activity, for example, can be redeemed. The wider impact of the Lord Jesus Christ as Redeemer awaits his return. In the meantime, only people are redeemed. When he comes back, he will complete the redemption uh, and bring in the new age. Now, the other kingdom, apart from this redemptive kingdom, is called the common kingdom. And Van Drunen is emphatic that this is one of God's kingdoms as much as the redemptive kingdom is. God himself, he writes, has established and rules the common kingdom. So that Christians and non-Christians alike live in this common kingdom under the reign of God. How, you may say, how does God rule over it? Well, he rules over it through the natural law, a law which Van Drunen argues is accessible and practicable for believers and unbelievers alike. Now, just stop and notice something about this because it's a really interesting move that he's made here. What he's not said is this. He's not said, here's the redemptive kingdom and then here's the secular realm, the neutral realm, spiritually neutral, where we have common ground with non-Christians. That's exactly the thing he won't say. For example, he writes, there is no middle ground and no zone of moral neutrality. The kingdom is in no sense a realm of moral neutrality or autonomy. I would say this is one of the big burdens of his book, to prove that there is no neutral realm, but that there is a second kingdom ruled over by God himself. In other words, he sets out to provide a proper theological basis for this common kingdom in which Christians and non-Christians function. It is not a redemptive kingdom, but it is equally not a neutral kingdom, and it is a kingdom ruled by God. He calls it a divinely ordained common kingdom that is legitimate, but not holy. I think what's going on here is probably some of his debt to Cornelius Van Til. Van Drunen is enough of a presuppositionalist to know that there's no neutral realm anywhere. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're either for Christ or you're against him. So he can't have a neutral secular realm. So the common kingdom is not a kingdom in spiritual no-man's land. So, there's his debt to Van Til. 
telling him it can't be neutral, it must be ruled by God. But on the other hand, his other motive, I think, is his desire to protect the spirituality of the church. To prevent the church getting caught up in the world, being subdued by the social gospel. And that impels him to maintain a common non-redemptive realm. You see these two thrusts. His Vantillianism says it can't be neutral, but his desire to protect the spirituality of the church says it can't be redemptive. Everything can't be redemptive. There's got got to be a common realm. And so you end up with this realm which is both those things. It's ruled by God and not neutral, but it is common, common to Christians and non-Christians alike. So he denies what he calls an ideological secularity He says all of reality must be viewed, uh, that was to say all of reality must be viewed apart from the existence of God and theological truth. But he keeps it under the reign of God by this idea of God's second kingdom. Now the question is really, how do you do that? (laughs) You see the the challenge there. You, You don't want to just abandon it to neutrality, but you don't want to bring it into the redemptive realm. So you've got to create a new kind of space, which is not neutral, but it's not redemptive either this common kingdom. And all the work here for Van Drunen, and here we come to our point, is done by Noah. Noah does that work for him. In particular, it is the covenant of Genesis 8 and 9 that does this work for Van Drunen. Notice not the covenant of rescue from the flood, but the covenant after the flood, the covenant of preservation. This is what Van Drunen writes. Early in Genesis, God established two covenants by which the two kingdoms were formally established. In his covenant with Noah, God entered covenantal relationship with the entire human race and with the entire creation, promising to preserve its cultural activities such as procreating and securing justice. This was the formal establishment of the common kingdom. So there's one. By contrast, in his covenant with Abraham... God entered covenantal relationship with a chosen people upon whom he bestows eternal salvation by faith, thereby distinguishing them from the rest of the human race. This was the formal establishment of the redemptive kingdom. God's people are thus called to live under both covenants, that is, in two kingdoms. Okay, now do you notice that? Christians are therefore in both kingdoms. It's not that there are Christians in one and non-Christians in another. I'll map it out in the diagram in a moment, which might help to explain it. Now notice, please, because this is important, that he is talking about the covenant of Genesis 8 and 9, which he separates off, as I mentioned. And here he follows the lead of Meredith Klein, who also taught at Westminster West. In his book, Kingdom Prologue, Klein argues this. Klein holds that the genealogy of chapter 5 is the genealogy of God's covenant people. The sacrifice offered by Noah in 8 verse 20 is a sacrifice of the covenant community, yes. But, he says, chapter 9 verses 1 to 17 records what he terms a different subsequent covenant. Here's how Klein explains the contrast. The covenant of 6818 is a covenant of salvation whose promise was realised within the historical episode of the flood judgement and not in any arrangement subsequent thereto. In particular, the post-Diluvian covenant delineated in Genesis 9 is not referred to in Genesis 618. It was not a covenant 
of special redemptive grace. It was not made with the Holy Covenant community, promising them the kingdom of salvation, but was rather a common grace arrangement made with mankind in general, indeed, with all the earth. Now, how does he argue that? Well, Klein says um, that the divine remembering of Genesis 8.1 corresponds to the divine covenanting of Genesis 6.18 as fulfilment to promise. In other words, putting it another way, when God remembers Noah and takes away the flood, he's kept his covenant promises of chapter 6. And that's it for that. Full stop. Break. Now, chapter 9, here's a different covenant coming. Okay, it's all fulfilled. 6.18 is all fulfilled in the preservation from the flood according to Klein. Having separated the two covenants, you can then argue that the second one, unlike the first, the second one is a common grace covenant. And Klein argues it must be a common grace covenant, the second one, because it doesn't hold out the kind of new creation that you see anticipated in the rest of the Bible. So you look at descriptions of the, new test- of the new creation elsewhere, and they far surpass what you get given to Noah in chapter 9. There is, he says, a radical difference between the two. And this shows that the second covenant can't be part of what would traditionally be called the covenant of grace. It must be understood as a common grace covenant, not a saving grace covenant. And for Klein, and Klein, I love reading Klein, but you've got to say he is prone to putting things very, very strongly, as I think are some of his his followers, which accounts for some of the temperature of this debate in America. But for Klein, it really must be counted as a common grace covenant. To do otherwise, he writes, is to introduce hopeless confusion into one's biblical theological analysis and the resultant world and life view. In a moment, you can come with me on a path to hopeless confusion. Now, let's come back to Van Drunen, because that was just to flesh out from Klein some of what's going on in Van Drunen. God then established two kingdoms by means of two covenants. One universal and non-redemptive That's the second covenant that he makes with Noah. The other particular and redemptive, that's the covenant that he makes with Abraham. A Christian lives under both covenants, the Noahic and the Abrahamic, and thus lives in two kingdoms. A non-Christian would only live in the one kingdom under the Noahic covenant. And so, Van Drunen believes, he has provided a theological basis in covenant theology for God to rule over all of the institutions of the world. He rules them, he writes, through the Noahic covenant, for they are institutions and communities of the common kingdom. And therefore, this second covenant, this chapters 8 and 9 covenant, is made with Noah not as head of the church but as head of everybody, head of the human race. And it has, this is important, no redemptive content. He writes, it concerns ordinary cultural activities rather than special acts of worship or religious devotion. 
it embraces the human race in common rather than a holy people that are distinguished from the rest of the human race. It ensures the preservation of the natural and social order rather than the redemption of this order and it is established temporarily rather than permanently. Now let me just press this point to bring it home because it's really important to understand that there is no redemption in this covenant for Vandrunen. He writes, the Noahic covenant is a covenant without redemption or salvation from sin and evil. It offered no promise of redemption. It delivers no assurance of salvation or the forgiveness of sins. It promises not salvation but only temporary preservation. And therefore, paraphrasing, it does not constitute a people holy to the Lord, but a common people. It is silent on the Messiah and it cannot produce the church. He writes this, the Noahic covenant says nothing about redemption and nothing about a Messiah and thus the church could never have emerged organically from this covenant. Now, he doesn't deny any conceivable relationship between the covenant with Noah and the covenant of grace because he clearly does believe that the covenant with Noah preserves the world in which redemption occurs but it itself has got nothing to do with redemption. The Noahic covenant is itself, he says, of a fundamentally different nature. Now, despite this, he does also believe that Noah was some kind of new Adam. He did receive dominion over the creation and all men received it with him but it was dominion in altered form. This is how he explains it. God does not call Christians to take up the original cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28 per se, but calls them to obey the cultural mandate as given in modified form to Noah in Genesis 9. Now, what does he mean by that? What's the modification? The modification is this. Originally, Adam was on trial. He was in a probationary test to inherit the world, if you like. Well, that's not us. We're born after Adam's failure. So our exercise of dominion, Noah's exercise of dominion, any human being's exercise of dominion, will never bring about a new earth. It's not something that's going anywhere. So when Noah is retasked with the task of Adam and the status of Adam, it's not going anywhere. It's just going to end when Christ returns. He's given dominion but it's a non-redemptive reality that has no future. And Van Drunen doesn't just say this about non-Christians, he's talking about Christians as well fulfilling Noah's task. They have no share in the work of the last Adam. There is, he wishes to underline, this is one of his big arguments, only one redemptive Adam in human history, the Lord Jesus Christ. To claim that we are little Adams for Van Drunen, is to usurp the unique place of the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts it like this. If Christ is the last Adam, then we are not new Adams. To understand our own cultural work as picking up and finishing Adam's original task is, however unwittingly, to compromise the sufficiency of Christ's work. And he even draws this connection. Because ascribing an Adamic role to us entails robbing Christ of his work, it amounts to seeking our own justification. So, he concludes, 
those who hold a traditional Protestant view of justification consistently should not find a redemptive transformationist perspective attractive. Because any kind of transformationism in which we do the work of Adam threatens the uniqueness of the work of Christ. Now, let me try and show you a diagram that might help with this. And I, you can have a copy of this afterwards if you would like one. Oh, that was the wrong button. Um, I hope it'll help. Um, it runs like this. Here's the covenant of works at the top, separated off clearly by a line from everything that follows it. This is God's covenant with Adam, which he breaks. God then forms, in the Noahic covenant, a universal common kingdom. So that's this whole larger box. In that, people are given the Adamic task in a modified form. All the dots are people. So they are non-Christians exercising a modified cultural mandate in a single kingdom that they live in. Okay. There is another kingdom, however, which is the redemptive kingdom. This is founded in God's covenant with Abraham, the covenant of grace. But notice that it's, I put the box inside the larger box, to indicate that any one of these people, namely believers, in the redemptive covenant is also within the universal common kingdom. So that when we do Adamic things, we do them in the same way as members of the common kingdom. There's no more redemptive significance to our Adamic tasks than there is to a non-Christian's Adamic tasks because, and this is his big thing, Christ is the last Adam. So the Adamic task in its true full form has come to Christ, not to the people of this kingdom who do those things in the same way as the people of this kingdom. Apart from in their minds where they know they're doing them for Jesus as Lord. He's clear on that. Does that make sense? Um, I think I'm I'm not going to stop just to take for the big question session here, but would anyone just like to ask any questions to clarify any of that? The reason being, and um, folks watching at home will just have to to have a sit and think for a minute, Uh, the reason being uh, that if you didn't get it, um, you may as well leave. Because, because the rest of it is engaging with this. Okay, so please, it's fairly knotty stuff and I'm sure I've been unclear in different ways. So it may be that it would be worth us pausing for just an unshared moment, if that's permitted, to say, does anyone just want to ask me anything, to clarify anything about Van Drunen's system? Okay, not about what's wrong with it or anything like that, but just what's going on. Ian. Hmm. Um, as far as I recall, not in, in living in God's two kingdoms, but that's, that's from memory. Hmm. Have a little think, if I just make sure you're happy on it. Now is your moment. Don't be shy. Please do ask, because it's my fault for not being clear. So please take the opportunity to, to clarify before we move on presuming it. Stefan. Just to help me, just to hmm. can you give me an example of something you're supposed to do in the modified Christ last Adam and Adamic? Yes, so what, okay, good question. So what kind of stuff is part of this big common kingdom um, that we do as Christians or as non-Christians? 
everything that's not the church is the answer. Um, So, politics, education, culture, the whole lot. The whole project, remember, is determined to protect the spirituality of the church. It's determined, what it's doing is it's saying redemption equals church, word, sacraments, and anything else is a common kingdom activity. The one exception to that that I've seen in his writings is the family, interestingly, given your paper. But even the family is a common kingdom institution which is taken up and used in particular ways in the redemptive kingdom. But it itself is common kingdom. Okay. Uh, good question. Um, the last section was quite helpful on this. Uh, not entirely. He's, he's quite clear that you are, you are... I mean, he uses the subjective-objective distinction. Subjectively, he thinks what you're doing is different. So, subjectively, you are trying to do it in a way that honours the Lord Jesus and the non-Christian isn't. Objectively, he's, he's quite strong on saying these things are the, are the same. Um, the actual activity is the same. Um, So he he employs the objective-subjective distinction there. Are the two kingdoms more or less equivalent to the difference between common and saving grace? Um, Yes, pretty much. This is is an account of where common grace comes from. It comes from God's covenant with Noah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that may be because I think that's, that's a little unclear in the, in the project itself. Because what you may be thinking is, on the one hand, you seem to say we're definitely not Adam, because only the Lord Jesus is Adam. But on the other hand, he seems to be saying we are Adams in a common kingdom Adam kind of way. And that's true. That is what he's saying. And I'm going to pick up on that ambiguity in a minute, because I think it's a, a potential problem with what he says. Yeah. Oh, well, I think the driving force is the desire, the, the right desire, and I, can, I want to come back to this at the very end, to protect the spirituality of the church. It's, it's to make sure the church doesn't stop being a church um, where the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered and, and become a, um, a sort of social gospel cause. Yeah, that's, that's the... So there's, in that sense, um, I, I want to say amen to, to that concern. Um, yeah. Okay. Go on, how about last one, yeah. Well, they're exclusive in one sense. They are two different kingdoms established by different covenants. But they're not exclusive in the sense that you, as a Christian, live in both of them for Van Drunen. So that you, li- you, you live in this covenant with Noah, doing the Adamic task in a modified form, but you're also redeemed. So they're not mutually exclusive in that sense, in that somebody can be in both of them, but they are two different covenants, one of which is utterly non-redemptive. That's the important thing. Noah is utterly non-redemptive. Yeah. Okay. Now, with all of that luminously clear before us, 
Um, let's, um, let's, let's move on. And I want to begin to suggest some difficulties with this entire system. I want to suggest that Van Drunen's reading of Noah is quite wrong and that the Noahic Covenant does not provide a theological basis for a non-redemptive account of human dominion. Let me repeat that. I'm going to argue that the Noahic Covenant does not provide a theological basis for a non-redemptive account of human dominion. You may be thinking, are you going to tell us that there's no common grace coming from the Noahic Covenant? That is not my argument. I'm going to come back to how there is later. But my argument is that you can't base an account of non-redemptive human dominion on God's covenant with Noah. In other words, God does not, in the Noahic Covenant, recommission the whole of humanity to the Adamic task apart from their inclusion in the redemptive order. Now, it's just worth pausing to note before we move on why this debate occurs in terms of the text of Genesis, isn't it? And it's, I think in a sense it's fairly obvious. As you read through this section of Genesis, Noah is at once the progenitor of the whole human race that continues after the flood and the head of the visible church in his time. So he is both those things in the text. John Owen says this about Adam's double identity. He says of Adam, at this time his family constituted the church of God and at the same time the entire human race. And that's true of Noah too. So there's there's that double aspect to Noah, which is simply a feature of the text. And what's happening here is that Van Drunen is saying what we should do is take Noah in chapters 8 and 9 as the head of the human race and here is a non-redemptive covenant with the whole race. And I'm going to say, hold on a minute, no, 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 no. We should take Adam here as the head of the church. He is, of course, both those things. The question is, in what capacity does God covenant with him? Now, how am I going to proceed? Well, um, I plan to begin with just some criticisms of Van Drunen's scheme before turning to make an exegetical case for a redemptive Noahic covenant extending through Genesis 6, 7, 8 and 9. Uh, My plan is that in the rest of this session... I'm going to give you a couple of criticisms of his position and then we'll discuss and we'll have a break and then in the next session I'm going to set out a positive case for a redemptive reading of the whole of God's dealings with Noah as an alternative to Van Drunen's reading. And I want to begin this with a question. We can go back to the handout. So you see we are now here. How do you restore Adam? That's the question. How do you restore Adam? How do you become a new Adam? One of the marvels of Genesis 6 to 9 that we've seen already in Stephen's paper is the way that those chapters echo chapters 1 and 2 of the book. And we've already seen that the flood is presented unmistakably as a work of decreation. Kleins describes it as that was described as the final stage in a process of cosmic degeneration that began in Eden. And then the recession of the flood, it's going down, is the opposite. It's a recreative act, restoring the original creation. And I can pass over this, the detail here, but just remind you of some of the things we saw from Stefan about the separation of land and water being broken down, the living creatures being destroyed, the role of the spirit 
waters above and below restrained, ground re-emerging, birds flying forth, creatures repopulating. All of this is decreation and recreation. And then, of course, in chapter 9, Noah is made the new Adam. And really, everybody agrees on this. This is not, well, as far as I'm aware, they do. It's not controversial. Van Drunen would agree with this. He himself writes these words. Because Genesis 8 is meant to be read as a reforming of the original creation of Genesis 1, and because the original command to be fruitful and multiply is repeated in 9.1 and 9.7, these thematic similarities between 1.26-29 and 9.2-6 provide compelling reasons to read the latter as a restatement of the dominion mandate. Okay, so Van Drunen says, here is Noah the new Adam. Another writer, who we'll come to a bit later and I'll introduce him properly then, Francis Roberts, says this. He was the period of the old world, in the American sense, I think, and the beginner of the new world, the omega of that, the alpha of this, describing the great status that Noah has in the text as a new Adam. Now, of course, there are some differences arising from the context of sin, the presence of eating meat and the death penalty, for example. It is also true, as Klein argued, as I mentioned earlier, that this commission that's given to Noah doesn't have all of the glory of the consummation of the new earth that you find in other passages in the Bible. Sure. But that is hardly an argument, I would suggest, for it being a non-redemptive commission, because that was Klein's argument, if you remember. It was that you don't see here the glory of the new earth that the rest of the Bible describes. Well, true. But doesn't every Old Testament anticipation of the new earth fall short in some way, or indeed of the new covenant fall short in some way? For example, the promised land. The promised land, as Klein himself argues at length in his works, is a type of the new earth to be inherited by the new Israel. But is it not a puny reflection of the new earth? We wouldn't therefore say that the Sinai covenant was not a redemptive covenant and was a common grace covenant because the promised land was so puny compared to the glory to come. We don't get here an exhaustive picture of the consummation then. But that doesn't mean that we don't have something pointing us to the consummation and we don't have real Adamic dominion given to Noah. And it's just at this point, I think, that one of the greatest difficulties uh, with Van Drunen's project emerges for me. And I just ask you that question again. How do you get to be a new Adam? Well, think about Adam's dominion in the Garden of Eden. Both exegetically and theologically, the dominion described in Genesis 1 rested on his creation in the image of God. He could rule as a king because he was made in the image of the king. His dominion was exercised in a garden, a garden tabernacle, think of that symbolism that we're familiar with, connecting the two, where he dwelt with God. By contrast, fallen Adam lost his dominion. He was made subordinate, not kingly, subordinate to the serpent, subordinate to his wife, subordinate even to the stubborn ground. The image of God was ruined in him and awaited restoration. 
And he was then closed out of the garden sanctuary where he dwelt with the Lord, away from the Lord's blessing presence. So I ask you the question, how are you going to get to be a new Adam? It seems to me there's only one answer in the Bible. And that is, a new Adam could only arise at the heart of the history of redemption. Unredeemed man could not be a new Adam. A non-redemptive covenant could not reinstate Adam even to Eden, let alone to glory. Bizarrely then, remember what Van Drunen is trying to do, He's trying to protect the uniqueness of Christ, the last Adam, the only one who gets the Adamic task in full. Bizarrely, Van Drunen, although he's seeking to establish and secure the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ as the last Adam, actually ends up affirming that the entire race is recommissioned as Adam in the Noahic Covenant. Ironically, it seems to me, it is his position which gives to humanity too much status apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. He ends up making the entire race into many Adams apart from the process of redemption. By contrast, if we understand the Noahic covenant of chapters 6, 7, 8 and 9, to be all a redemptive covenant, then the restoration of Noah to Adam's role, which is so plainly described in the text as Van Drunen acknowledges, all comes to rest proleptically on the redemptive work of Christ that lies in the future. If the Noahic covenant establishes or re-establishes the Adamic dominion of the human race and gives it to Noah, as the text says it does, then that covenant, I would argue, must be a redemptive covenant because that is the only way back. (coughs) That's the first argument. How do you restore Adam only in a redemptive covenant? Is it it an Adam-restoring covenant in chapter 9? Yes, it is. Therefore, it's a redemptive covenant. Now let's just think a bit more before we break about this idea of sharing in the work of the last Adam. Remember Van Drunen's assertions, one of his potent arguments. Because there is only one last Adam, the activities of Christians cannot be characterised as part of the redemptive kingdom. Now it is a potent argument, isn't it? Because it identifies any transformationism as an implied denial of the work of Christ. Only Christ is the last Adam. You transformationist, in speaking about your Christian obedience being Adamic, are trying to take from Christ his unique function. It's like giving yourself a role in justification, Van Drunen says. Well, if that were true, who would want to be a transformationist? But it seems to me that the logic of Van Drunen's argument is questionable. On the one hand, you've got to agree with some of it, haven't you? I agree with Van Drunen, for example, when he writes that believers are not returned to the position of the first Adam, called to win the world to come by their faithful cultural activities. Of course they're not. 
Only the Lord Jesus Christ wins the world to come. The creation itself will only be redeemed when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. But I don't think that that means that our good works must be classified as part of a common kingdom rather than the redemptive kingdom. It seems to me that Van Drunen only has two alternatives that he can envisage. We can hold a view of our activity as part of the redemptive kingdom and deny the work of Christ, or we can preserve the work of Christ by identifying our activity as common kingdom activity. But I think that's a false dichotomy. Just because the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who decisively and finally accomplishes the work of redemption, that does not mean that we are never and can never be joined to him and share in what he has already fully purchased for us. Try a comparison with holiness, for example, and see where it takes you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only truly holy man. He is decisively and finally holy for us. His righteousness is our righteousness. It's our only justifying righteousness. His holiness is the basis of our being declared righteous in him. We can never assume his role of being perfectly holy and therefore justifying It would indeed deny the gospel if we said we could. But do we therefore conclude that we must not, in our Christian lives, seek to share in his kingdom of God holiness? Hardly. It just doesn't follow. Take sacrifice as an example. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is utterly unique as atonement. But do we share in it? We do share in his sacrifice. We're to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices. We follow in his footsteps. The exclusivity of the atonement does not prevent our participation in Christ as sacrifices by union with him. Not as atoning sacrifices, but as sacrifices nonetheless. We don't have to create another realm in which to locate sacrifice, the common kingdom realm, for fear of taking that function from Jesus. So too then, surely, with his Adamic work. We don't threaten the work of Christ by holding that our exercise of dominion in him is part of the redemptive kingdom. Van Drunen writes this, We have not been commissioned to conquer the devil. Christ has already conquered him. This is part of his argument about protecting the uniqueness of Christ. Conquest, Christ only. Our activities, not conquest. Common kingdom activities. Well, isn't that right? Clearly it is in one sense, isn't it? In terms of the decisive conquest of Satan, that is absolutely right. And to deny it is to take to ourselves a gospel-denying function. But does that preclude all conquest on our part? Think of the book of Revelation, for example. This is the book which extols conquest by the lion, 5 verse 5, and the lamb, 17 verse 14. You couldn't find a clearer book on the unique conquering work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you remember what the Lord Jesus says at the end of his letters to the churches? 
repeatedly he promises reward to those who themselves conquer. Christ alone conquers with a capital C. His conquest is then worked out in and through us. Now, can we employ some helpful distinctions here? That our works in all of our lives are part of the redemptive kingdom, but they are not redeeming. They are not part of the accomplishment of redemption, but they are part of its outworking. They are part of the redemptive kingdom, not causally, but consequently. I would argue that to assert that is not to deny the gospel, it is actually simply to affirm the necessary outworking of the gospel. It is to remember, taking Van Drunen's justification argument, sanctification, progressive sanctification, as well as justification and definitive sanctification. That brings me to the end of those two critical points on Van Drunen. Um, I'm aware I've not yet told you what the evidence is from the text for it being a redemptive covenant, um, and that we will look at in the next session. So I will now um, come and take questions on, on that material. <laughs>